Hey, welcome back, Rebel EMers. This is the first episode of Rebel Crit Cast, and I'm your host, Frank Lodeserto. I'm a practicing adult and pediatric intensivist at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. And today, in our first podcast episode, we're going to talk about a hot topic, and that is therapeutic hypothermia post-cardiac arrest, or targeted temperature management post-cardiac arrest. And this is in light of a new trial that came out called the Hyperion Trial, which is very nicely reviewed on our website, Rebel EM, by Mark Ramsey and Salim Rizé. But uh, today I hope to give you an overview of all the trials, and I said all the trials uh, because I'm going to go through the adult trials first, and then I'm also going to give you an overview of the pediatric trials and and a quick or brief summary of the neonatal trials. I'll give you my opinion of what I think we should be doing related to targeted temperature management post-cardiac arrest. Number two, we'll go over the neuroprotective mechanism by which we believe therapeutic hypothermia works. As we know, hypoxemic ischemic brain injury is the most common cause of death after cardiac arrest. Thirdly, we'll discuss the side effects or adverse effects of hypothermia. And lastly, we'll close with some practical tips on how to implement this therapy. So let's get started. So is this a new therapy? Um, no, actually. You know, it's interesting that uh, Hippocrates has described or described um, saving soldiers in the snow and ice. And even in Napoleonic times, uh, one of Napoleon's surgeons actually described um, soldiers who, who slept out in the ice and snow uh, versus wounded soldiers that slept closer to the fire. Those soldiers that slept out in the, in the snow and ice actually did better. Uh, clinically. And there were some small trials back in the 1940s and, and 1950s at um, t- um, looking at TBI and cardiac arrest. But it wasn't until 2002 that a, a few major trials uh, were released to really uh, put uh, hypothermia on the map and get it started in hospitals. Those trials um, examined out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a shockable or V-fib rhythm. Uh, those were both released in uh, the February edition of the New England Journal, 2002. The first trial was the HACA trial, or hypothermia after cardiac arrest. They enrolled 275 patients. And what they're looking for is good neurologic outcome, um, survivability with good neurologic outcome at six months, and mortality at six months. And what they found is patients who were enrolled in therapeutic hypothermia, or those patients who are cooled to 33 degrees, had a 55% of survival with good neurologic outcome as opposed to those who got normal thermia or the standard of care, many more of these patients had fever, they had a survivable survivability with good with a neurologic outcome of 39%. So this was a significant difference. Mortality was also decreased in the hypothermia group from 41% to those in the normal thermia group at 55%. And that same addition, as I mentioned, the Bernard trial was released. Now, this was a smaller trial with 77 patients. And what they looked at is survivability with good neurologic outcome at discharge. So um, what they they saw as patients who received therapeutic hypothermia of 33 degrees had a 49% survivability to discharge with good neurologic outcome, as opposed to those who received normal thermia had a 26% survivability uh, with good neurologic outcome at discharge. So again, a significant difference with implementing hypothermia. I want to mention that what they used to look at and, and with these trials using hypothermia, looking at uh, what they're looking at when, when I mentioned good neurologic outcome is they're looking at the cerebral performance category or the CPC. So I like to think in the two extremes. So 
A CPC-1 is mild neurologic deficit and patients are able to return to work. And a 5 is death. So what we want to see is a 1 or a 2. I mentioned 1 and a 2 would be moderate disability. So these patients can return to independent living. And then bad outcomes um, would be a 3 or 4. 3 is severe neurologic disability. So dependent on others for care. Four is persistent vegetative state. So the question after these two trials was, was this. Is it, is it fever prevention? Maybe it's just the fact that we prevent fever uh, because, as I mentioned, those in the normal thermia group had much more prone to fever. So is it fever prevention or is it something about the hypothermia that helps? And that was a question that remained for a while. And the next major trial was the TTM or the Nielsen trial in 2013. And again, what was this? The HACA and the Bernard trial were out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and I mentioned these were shockable rhythms, VFib. And this was essentially the same. This was out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a shockable and non-shockable rhythm. But 80% of these patients enrolled were, um, were presented with a shockable rhythm, that is VFib arrest. This was a much larger trial, 939 patients in 36 ICUs in Europe and Australia. And essentially, it was a dosing trial. What do I mean by that? Well, they used, they enrolled patients in this trial to get targeted temperature management of 33 degrees, which we call mild hypothermia, or targeted temperature management at 36 degrees. The mortality was the same at the end of the trial, 50% versus 48%, no difference. Uh, they also looked at uh, six months, and there was no difference. And there was no difference in survivability with favorable neurologic outcomes. Uh, that is a CPC score of one or two. There was no difference. So next I'm going to talk about the Hyperion trial, but, uh, or to wrap up our discussion. But there were, um, I want to mention there were two major pediatric trials uh, that came out after the Nielsen trial that are often not discussed, probably because they're pediatric trials as, as we're not this, we're, and a lot of the podcasts are discussing more of the adult trials. But I do want to talk about these, but I'm going to talk about these separate. I'm going to finish off uh, the discussion on the adult trials first. And I think it's interesting, before I get into the Hyperion trial, it's interesting that after the Nielsen trial uh, was published, many, many centers started to adopt targeted temperature management of 36 degrees compared to what was previously done, 33 degrees, because of the trial results. And uh, I'm going to put, what I'm about to mention some of these trials, but I'll put them in the show notes. But what many, tri- what many centers are seeing, uh, those that have uh, changed to 36 degrees, uh, and again, like I said, I'll, I'll mention these and I'll put these in the show notes, but is that um, the patients that are, are, are getting targeted temperature management at 36, it is really hard to keep them at 36. And some studies have shown that patients that are getting 36 degrees have developed uh, or more prone to fevers and have more likelihood and more risk of fever. And um, there was a recent retrospective trial that, again, I'll put in the show notes showing that there was a worse outcomes with 36 degrees. Uh, and um, I'm not sure if it's the 36 degrees and, and not receiving the hypothermia or the fact that it's so hard to keep patients at 36 degrees. Uh, and these patients are more prone to develop fevers and uh, likely worse neurologic outcome if that happens. Because we know fever in the injured brain is is bad. So I'll mention these in the, in the show notes, but I, I, um, I do want to get into the next trial, which is the Hyperion trial, which just came out October 2019 by Dr. Laskaru and colleagues. This was looking at post-cardiac arrest patients in a non-shockable rhythm. Now, I mentioned that the TTM trial had some patients with a non-shockable rhythm, but the vast majority of these patients were in a uh, shockable VFib rhythm. So this was the first 
major randomized control trial, trial examining this group of patients. And this is, for me at least, the most common uh, presentation post-cardiac arrest. I see patients who uh, were in PEA or asystole that are presenting to my hospital. And I'm not sure about you, but um, you, you might be the same. I, I just see less V-fib arrests or shockable rhythms. And who knows why? There's, there's probably a, a variety of reasons that, that, um, that this occurs. Uh, maybe these patients weren't found in time and that V-fib eventually came PEA or asystole. Perhaps um, the right placement of ICDs in patients. So we're seeing less V-fib arrest. And uh, maybe it's the excellent uh, cardiology and uh, care and medications that we're, we're using nowadays that we see uh, in uh, patients uh, going into V-fib arrest. But whatever the reason, uh, this looked at non-shockable rhythms. So they had a total patients of 581 enrolled throughout 25, throughout France in 25 ICUs. These patients uh, either received targeted temperature management of 33 degrees or targeted normal thermia of 37 degrees. And what they looked at, looked at is survivability with good neurologic outcome at 90 days or a CPC score of one or two, as you mentioned. So was there a difference? Um, and, and yes, there was. So those patients who were cool to 33 degrees had a survivability with good neurologic outcome of 10.2%, as opposed to those who got uh, targeted normal thermia at 37 degrees, had survivability with a good neurologic outcome of 5.7%, and the number needed to treat was 22. There was no major difference in mortality. So this was a, was a positive trial looking at mild hypothermia, showing that there may be a um, benefit of using mild hypothermia at 33 degrees to give patients in a non-shockable rhythm, uh, survival with good neurologic outcome. Now, I want to mention that the current ILCOR guidelines, and if you wonder what ILCOR is, you might have heard of it, but ILCOR is the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, and it's made up of a group of, um, a group of the, from uh, the American Heart Association, the European Association, as well, the Cana- as, well as the Canadian Society, as well as, uh, as, well as others. And uh, what the ILCOR guidelines say is that uh, we can uh, use a dosing range. That means we can use anywhere between 33, uh, th- excuse me, 32 and 36 degrees in patients who present to our hospital post-cardiac arrest. Now, this sounds confusing, but, but I'd like to explain how I, like, how I use these guidelines um, and how you, can, you know, how you can use them as well to best serve your patients. But again... It is confusing. What do we use? 32, 33, 34, 35, or 36? And, and when do we use the different uh, uh, temperatures? And I'll explain that. But um, let me just wrap up these trials briefly for you here. So we see that in the HACA trial, Bernard trial, TTM trial, they were out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, essentially shockable rhythms, V-fib arrest. Interesting to note the mortality in these trials was about 40 to 50%. So you can argue um, the patients were not that sick. In the Hyperion trial, um, these are much sicker patients. So the mortality as compared to these other trials I mentioned was 80%. 70% received bystander CPR just like the TTM trial. Yeah, I noted the, the rhythm is, is, is different. Um, so those patients were V-fib. These were PEA. So who knows if these patients weren't in V-fib initially and then progressed to asystole. But again, I, I, I truly believe that the uh, brain sees uh, no flow, and uh, I, I don't think it matters if it's V-fib or asystole. Uh, in terms of what the brain sees, when the brain doesn't have flow, the brain doesn't have flow. So 
what do we do? Well, I truly believe we should consider cooling all patients, and I say at least consider cooling all patients to 33 degrees, regardless of the rhythm they're in. And I'll give you my three reasons why. So uh, number one, looking at all the results, uh, especially the recent Hyperion trial, um, these are very sick patients with an 80% mortality. So this is probably likely more of the patients that you see in your institution, and it's definitely the patients that I see in my institution. So I believe we are giving these patients who come in post-cardiac arrest the best shot at neurologic protection and recovery. And if you think about it, we, we don't have a second chance to do this. The uh, time is of the essence. Um, so we have one shot, and um, if we wait, there may be irreversible brain injury that we can never recover. So we do have one shot at giving our patients the best chance of survival with good neurologic outcome. The TTM, HACA, Bernard trial, they saw a lot less sick patients, so, so maybe 36 is okay in them. And uh, one of my fellows brought up, well, maybe we should do 36 degrees for patients in V-fib arrest and then 33 in PEA arrest. And, you know, I had a hard time um, accepting that, and uh, I understand why they say it, from the trials at least, but you got to remember that many of these trials are well done, but they had a lot of exclusion criteria, and they excluded many, many sick patients in these trials. Um, that, unfortunately, we see at our institution, and uh, we can't simply exclude. I mean, we don't always have to offer all services, but, but we, we just cannot exclude. So, and, and the other argument is we don't know who's going to be sick, or who's going to be the sickest, who's going to be the 80% or 50, 40, 50% at the time they present. At the time they present, they're comatose, um, they're sick, and um, I think we need to give them the best chance at neurologic recovery and survivability. So I think going with 33 degrees uh, is safe, it's effective, and I, and I think it should be the standard in our, our patients, at least considering 33. And I'll tell you, there are times that I, I don't always do 33, and I'll tell you those uh, as the podcast goes on. So that's one thing. I believe we should be cooling or considering uh, cooling all patients to 33 degrees. Number two, uh, there was no difference in adverse effects. So meaning all the trials, and I say all the trials, the pediatric, pediatric trials included, the HACA, the Bernard, the TTM, and now the Hyperion trial show that cooling patients to 33 degrees had no significant adverse effects compared to those at 36 degrees or 37 degrees. That's right. This is a myth. I hear this all the time in my institution. Why would we do 33 degrees? It's, there's, you're putting your patient at risk for hy with hypothermia uh, when 36 works. And, and I hear it all the time, and, it, and it's a myth. There's no difference in the trials if you go back and look at these at these major adverse events. So I believe 33 gives our chance, our patients the best chance at neurologic survival. It doesn't lead to more adverse events. And number three, my third reason is 36 and 37, it just seems like it, it's so hard to do. Maybe your institution is really good at keeping patients at 36 degrees or, or 37 degrees. But if you're looking at some of these trials that I'll put in the show notes, it's, it's really hard to keep a patient at 36 degrees and 37 degrees. They're just more prone to fever. And if they're more prone to fever, you wonder if they're um, going to have a worse neurologic outcome because of that. So I, I think for those three reasons, I think we should at least consider all patients presenting to our institution uh, cooling at 33 degrees. So now let's get into the pediatric trials. There were two major trials, as I mentioned, and these were called the THAPCA trials, or Therapeutic, therapeutic Hypothermia After Pediatric Cardiac Arrest. There was an outpatient out-of-hospital cardiac arrest trial in May 2015 in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was also an inpatient cardiac arrest trial, the FAPCA in-hospital cardiac arrest trial, January 2017 in the New England Journal. But the FAPCA out-of-hospital uh, enrolled children 
two days, uh, two days old to less than 18 years of age. They cool patient to 33 degrees uh, versus uh, targeted normothermia or 37 degrees. They enrolled 260 patients. And the primary outcome was survivability with good neurologic outcome, just like our adult studies. And the bottom line was there was no difference. There was no difference in survivability with good neurologic outcome. But um, there was a trend towards improved survivability with good neurologic outcome in the patients in the 33-degree uh, arm. This group had a 20% survivability with good neurologic outcome, as opposed to those with uh, targeted normothermia, only had a 12% um, survivability with good neurologic outcome. So uh, the big criticism of this trial, and it was well done, but the big criticism was that it was underpowered. And if they enrolled maybe 50 more patients, we would have saw a significant difference, and we may have changed what we do in our management. So that was the, 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 the big criticism. Let me get into, and I'll wrap them both up together and kind of summarize, but the FAPCA in-hospital cardiac arrest trial, which I mentioned was in the January 2000 edition, 2017 edition, excuse me, of the New England Journal of Medicine. These enrolled the same, uh, same ages, so two days to less than 18 years of age. Uh, same study looked at 33 degrees versus 37 degrees, and unfortunately, we see the same outcomes in this. There was no... Um, there was no difference in survivability with good neurologic outcome. They enrolled a total of 329 patients. So the summary of these two trials uh, is the out-of-hospital, as you, as you might imagine, 70% of these patients presented with respiratory causes of their cardiac arrest. About half the patients had chronic medical conditions. The in-hospital group had 50% of their patients were related, their, their, their cardiac arrests were related to congenital heart disease. Um, as compared to the respiratory causes. Uh, the mortality in both groups was about 50%. In both studies, um, there was not a lot of shockable rhythms. In fact, less than 10% in both studies had patients who had shockable rhythms at the time of their arrest. The vast majority of these patients were PEA, asystole, and uh, bradycardia. The average ages, roughly, in both these trials was about one to two years of age. And the, the majority of, uh, of children were less than 12 years of age. In fact, there was only 20% of the patients in both studies that were uh, older than um, in, um, tw 12 years of age. So this really looked at younger children and not our adolescent uh, patients, who you might think are, are closer to uh, adult-like. I don't, I don't like to say that uh, kids are small adults at all, but, but I'm just sort of pointing that out. There's also, as I mentioned earlier, no difference in major adverse events between 33 and 37. So it's 30, you know, if you want to use 33, it is safe. Uh, and before I get into what I think we should be doing in pediatrics, uh, I do want to mention some of the neonatal data if you're unfamiliar. So uh, patients who have hypoxemic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE, uh, it is recommended to cool these patients between uh, 33 and 35 degrees. And this is for late preterm uh, infants, so 34 weeks to term infants, 36 weeks. It does show that cooling helps uh, improve survival and uh, survival and as well as uh, survivability with good neurologic outcome. There was a nice Cochrane uh, review in 2013. So this usually is the standard of care in most neonatal ICUs if that, if that baby is found uh, within the first six hours after birth uh, to enroll in cooling. So what should we do in, in pediatrics or what should we do in kids? So I really don't have the data to strongly say we should do 33 degrees. And I know a lot of uh, my friends at large children's hospitals are, are split. Um, even our hospital, you know, there's, there's ongoing discussions about what the best uh, route to go is in these children. 
because uh, we just really don't have the studies to show it in kids. Uh, ILCOR guidelines also gives a range here that says you uh, can use uh, mild hypothermia or targeted normal thermia. Um, I still say cool. And uh, taking in consideration also the adult trials, especially the Hyperion trial, which was non-chakra rhythms, very similar to what we saw in these pediatric trials. Uh, I believe it does offer a neuroprotective benefit. Perhaps the out-of-hospital, the FAPCA out-of-hospital trial was underpowered. There was a trend towards improvement in good neurologic survivability. Uh, and again, I go back to my three reasons. I, I really do feel like we can give these kids the best shot at neurologic recovery. We, we're not putting them at adverse um, uh, risk or putting them in having more side effects using 33, as we see in these trials and even in the adult trials. And I, and I, and I truly believe now, I think that pediatric intensive care hospital nursing care is excellent as it is in the adult hospitals. But but keeping kids at 37 degrees or targeted normothermia is, is hard in real life outside of a randomized controlled trial land. So I, I do think we should be using uh, targeted temperature management of 33 in these kids to give them the best chance at neurologic survivability. But I, I honestly don't have the data. Uh, I, I take in sort of the uh, collection of all the data from the adult and pediatric trials to sort of give my opinion on this. So let's talk, let's shift gears here. Let's talk about how therapeutic hypothermia or target temperature management, so cooling someone down, whatever temperature you choose, how it works, how it works to provide a neuroprotective benefit. Well, it, it's complex. Uh, and if I were, I could probably do one or two podcasts. I don't know if I can even do one or two podcasts on it because it is, it is so complex. In fact, there are 20 biologically plausible mechanisms described on how it works. Um, however, I, I like to simplify it, uh, and when I teach my residents and my fellows, I, I sort of simplify it, and I hope this helps you as well. But the first phase is um, a global ischemic uh, phase where they have no flow. And if this is prolonged, uh, it will lead to irreversible cell death. However, once we get return of spontaneous circulation, you know, in brain cells, and, and, and now discussing brain cells that are survived, or have survived this injury, I, I sort of liken it to um, the hardest workout that you've ever had in your life. So think back to the hardest workout you've ever had in your life, okay? So what did you do after the hardest workout of your life? Well, you probably wanted to fall over, rest. You probably didn't want to do a second workout, right? That's, a, that's, that's a, at least me. Maybe I'm lazy, but I didn't want to do a second workout after that. So these brain cells have just went through the hardest workout they'll ever have to do. They were depleted of oxygen and blood, and blood flow, and now they're, they're exhausted. They're exhausted. So they're slowing down. So they have decreased, we're going to say decreased cerebral metabolism. They have less ATP production. And they are not going to be able to utilize glucose very effectively. And they have also decreased oxygen consumption. So these, these cells basically switch to an anaerobic metabolism where there's increased lactate production. There is increased uh, hydrogen ion production. So there's an acidemic environment. And this acidemia is one of the things that leads to an influx of extracellular calcium into cells, into neurons. This does one of two things. One, it triggers apoptosis and cell death. And number two, it releases an excitatory neurotransmitter uh, named glutamate to be released. So glutamate increases the risk of seizures, as you can imagine. So these patients who are post-cardiac arrest with high levels of glutamate released uh, do have a tendency for having seizures. So up to 20% has been described. They can have seizures, post-cardiac arrest. So it's very important that we follow these patients with an EEG very closely 
and aggressively treat seizures because we don't want the uh, injured brain, again, seizing and hyperstimulated, uh, as, I, as I just described, um, as they're exhausted. And basically, this will trigger apoptosis and cell death, so we want to avoid this. So there is no role for starting uh, prophylactic anti-epileptics, uh, at least from the data we have. But EEG monitoring and aggressive treatment of seizures is, is very important. So this glutamate is released, and it, had, it, it does a few things as well. It can increase, it can lead to seizures, but the other thing that it triggers is intracellular, or excuse me, chloride uh, influx into cells, which is one of the reasons there's uh, inflammation and cellular edema, which can lead to cerebral edema. And uh, this could do two things. One, lead to cerebral edema, uh, which is bad, swelling. Uh, and this could also trigger apoptosis and cell death. So there's many other things, but uh, so one of the things that we believe cooling does is it decreases the cerebral metabolic rate. So if you cool a patient uh, down by at least one degree centigrade, uh, what this does is it drops the cerebral metabolic rate about 8% and uh, vice versa. So if you increase, so patients why fever is bad, well, one of the reasons fever is bad is that if you increase uh, the core temperature by one degree, this could increase the cerebral metabolic rate as well. So you're asking this injured brain who's physically exhausted to do more work, which is harmful uh, to the brain. But again, cooling this patient, cooling these patients decreases the cerebral metabolic rate. This cascade that I just described above is blunted and allows cells to rest and um, not have to undergo uh, this, this work. Um, and all the things that I described above are, are, are at least diminished or blunted. So besides decreasing cellular metabolism, what cooling does is it, um, um, uh, like I said, blunts the calcium influx, uh, decreases acidemia, decreases glutamate release, so you can think of it as having some anti-epileptic properties. It may blunt cerebral edema, as one of the contributors may be this chloride influx. It also decreases um, free radical production, which is also injurious uh, to the brain and, causes, and can cause cell death. It decreases cytokine release. Uh, cytokine release may be one of the contributors uh, to uh, fever post-arrest and also uh, decreases the inflammatory uh, effects as well. So, so cooling can decrease cerebral edema, can decrease this inflammation as well. So I hope that uh, at least was uh, a little bit more simplified in how it works from a neuroprotective standpoint. Uh, I do want to talk about the adverse effects um, from cooling someone. As I mentioned, the, the trials did not show any major differences, but, but there are some known adverse effects in cooling patients or mild um, hypothermia. Um, the first the thing we think about is arrhythmias. So the most common is bradycardia. So uh, cooling patients uh, can lead to bradycardia. So this is common, um, not necessarily harmful, but patients can have heart rates as low as um, uh, 50s, 40s. However, we do have to be cautious that this can lead to hemodynamic instability. So, uh, but bradycardia is common. I'll talk about that in just a second. The next is QTC prolongation. So you watch your QTC, especially with some of the medications that patients are on in the ICU. Uh, number two, it can lead to a coagulopathy. That is, uh, decrease in temperatures can increase the risk of bleeding. Uh, number three, it can increase insulin resistance, uh, and this can lead to uh, hyperglycemia, which we know hyperglycemia is bad in the injured brain as they're not able to metabolize glucose uh, adequately. So after, I, so I want to talk, I talked earlier about how the ILCOR guidelines gives us a dosing range, meaning you can choose between 32 and 36. And I thought I'd just take a break here and, and talk about that for a second, as I mentioned, adverse effects. So if you had a patient that came in with a, let's say, uh, known QTC prolongation 
and that was the cause of their arrest. Or uh, you're seeing your patient develop bradycardia with hemodynamic instability. Or, or maybe the reason for your patient's arrest was uh, bleeding. So they had a GI bleed, which led to uh, hypotension and uh, cardiac arrest. Uh, or they have an intracranial hemorrhage, either causing the arrest or maybe from a fall, and you've got a CT scan that shows intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, or, or as I mentioned, you maybe have a patient with just uh, very difficult to control glucose levels, even at high doses of insulin, you just cannot bring that glucose down. Well, here's where I think the dosing range comes in. So I may start with 33 degrees, and if I'm, uh, I have a patient who's developed uh, significant bradycardia, then I, uh, I can back off. I can uh, allow the temperature to go up to 34 or 35 and see if that bradycardia improves and hemodynamic, uh, impro there's hemodynamic improvements. If I have someone who's QTC prolongation, I can uh, monitor EKGs and, and maybe I have to push their temperature up a little bit in that range and not do necessarily 33. Or if a patient has an intracranial hemorrhage or a major bleed, then, then I'm probably in those patients shooting for 36 degrees as opposed to 33 degrees because I, I don't want any um, increased risk of bleeding or worsening intracranial hemorrhage. Or if I just cannot, no matter how much insulin I give them, get this glucose under control, then maybe I push the temperature up from uh, 33 to 34. Maybe that improves, maybe 35 degrees until I get improvement and, and control over their glucose levels. Okay, so that's how I use the dosing range. Uh, let me go on in some of the adverse effects. So there's also something known as cold diuresis when you uh, cool patients uh, with mild hypothermia, 33 degrees. We see this sort of cold diuresis, which is a systemic vasoconstriction. Patients can lose a lot of potassium, magnesium, and even calcium in their urine. In fact, probably the most uh, worrisome uh, electrolyte to watch is, is potassium. It can be hard to control. They lose a lot of potassium, and they, became, they become, in the cooling phase, hypokalemic. So we do have to uh, aggressively replace their potassium. Now, a little caveat here. As we're starting to rewarm these patients, we see a reverse of this. So when I'm getting close to the rewarming phase, um, I, I probably want to keep the patient's potassium in the low normal range, as I know it's going to go up and trend up as I, as I start to rewarm that patient. So we don't want to have our patients hypokalemic, and we certainly don't want them hyperkalemic. Cooling is also noted to decrease immune function, so it can decrease leukocyte uh, function. Uh, there's concern that this may lead to sepsis, particularly ventilator-associated pneumonia. Many of these patients who um, arrest, vomit, and aspirate, and so we may put them at risk for infection, is particularly ventilator-associated pneumonias. However, none of the studies have shown that, that cooling patients of 33 versus 36 or 37 have increased risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. So it's more of a theoretical risk, but, but it's a risk nonetheless that I talk about. It... Uh, um, Therapeutic hypothermia can cause a decrease in drug metabolism. This is real and have to watch this. This decreases hepatic metabolism and, and impairs the cytochrome P450 system. So, so many of the drugs that you give patients may last longer. So just be cautious as you're doing your examinations um, that some of these drugs, you have to give time uh, for patients to um, be able to metabolize these drugs when they're, when they're being cooled. Uh, it's slower metabolism. So these, drugs effects last, these drug effects last longer. So that's very important to consider. And the last thing I want to talk about is shivering. So why is shivering bad? Uh, well, shivering does uh, two things. It increases oxygen demand, and it can cr increase oxygen consumption, two things that you want to avoid because uh, you uh, in, in, in the injured brain. So what we tend to do, and I don't want to get into all the drugs, is uh, use our sedation drugs. And if we can sedate them and stop them from shivering, great. But I am, uh, I'm not uh, worried about paralyzing these patients as I... As I, as I know, this is a detrimental side effect, and uh, as long as they're well sedated, I'll have no problems uh, paralyzing them temporarily. 
to decrease their shivering. So as we wrap up here, let's talk about how to cool. Well, the first phase, we get a patient in our institution that we want to uh, use therapeutic hypothermia. Let's say we're going to choose target temperature management of 33 degrees. So we want to cool them ASAP, so as fast as possible, hopefully within six hours. There's many methods to get them cool. Your institution may have uh, external cooling devices. They may have intravascular cooling devices. If you're at a small hospital that has nothing, um, you can use cold IV fluids if they're available. Uh, you can also pack the groin, the axilla, uh, with ice until they can get to an institution that can provide therapeutic hypothermia. Um, but you want to do this within six hours, and that's known as the induction phase, when we're trying to get them to uh, target temperature management of whichever temperature we choose. Then there's a maintenance phase, so we want to maintain that targeted temperature management. Here, let's say for this example, 33 degrees. So we want to keep that goal temp uh, for at least 12, but uh, um, most likely, sort of more optimally, we want to keep it at for 24 hours. After we've completed this 24 hours of cooling, uh, then we move into our rewarming phase. So this is a slow rewarming. We don't want the injured brain temperature, the temperature to rise in the injured brain to increase cerebral metabolism. So we slowly rewarm. And this is done over 48 to 72 hours. And we rewarm them back to normothermia. We don't just let them go. So back to normothermia. And that's known as a rewarming phase. And then the last phase, which isn't always described, is this I, I call the targeted normothermia phase, where I'd like to keep this patient's temperature normal uh, the brain is recovering uh, from injury, and I still would like to prevent fever. So I probably uh, implement this at least 48 hours, if not longer. Here's where there may be a role. No great data on this, but there, here's where there may be a role, a scheduling acetaminophen. So in the uh, end of the rewarming phase and the normal thermia phase, I, I think it's completely appropriate to schedule acetaminophen. Uh, be cautious in those patients who have bad liver disease, but scheduling acetaminophen Again, no data to support this, but I think it makes uh, sense because uh, we don't want these patients to overshoot and develop fever. And I guess the last thing I want to talk about is closed-loop uh, devices versus non-closed-loop devices. So this was apparent in the Hyperion trial. Many more patients who got uh, targeted normothermia had non-closed-loop devices and were uh, prone to fevers. So what do I mean here? Well, this is um, uh, some devices will give the cooling machine direct feedback on the patient's body temperature. And based on that feedback, uh, it's a closed-loop system. So based on that feedback, the machine's uh, output will vary. So uh, it may um, uh, decrease the amount of cooling or increase the amount of cooling based on what the patient's body temperature is doing. So it will always try to maintain that, that uh, temperature very closely to where you're shooting for. Uh, in non-closed-loop systems, these are maybe patients that are on a cooling blanket where the nurse is measuring the temperature, uh, and whatever method she's measuring the temperature, he's measuring the temperature that uh, they're then taking off, putting on cooling blankets, and you can see how this can have, uh, this can be more prone to uh, error and uh, overshooting uh, and having fevers. So I, I think closed-loop devices make sense. Uh, if your institution has it, great. Uh, if not, consider thinking about them. Um, I don't have great data to show that uh, closed-loop devices are better, but to me it makes more sense that closed-loop devices will give you really tight control over that temperature. This can be through an intravascular cooling device or even surface cooling device. All right, So that's all I'll say about that. Really, in summary, uh, as I bring this to a close for my first podcast, what should we be doing in patients post-cardiac arrest that come to our institution, whether it's VFIP or PEA arrest, kid or adult? Well, I, I really think we should be uh, considering considering cooling all patients at 33 degrees. Now, there were a few caveats that I mentioned in the adverse effects where 
I will shoot for 36 uh, degrees. Those would be the uh, patients who uh, rested probably because of a, uh, a bleed. We think they rested because of a bleed or, or they have intracranial hemorrhage. And uh, consider backing down that 33 if there's some adverse effects that you're seeing with 33 that you can't control. But again, I think we should be considering uh, cooling all patients uh, to 33 degrees. Uh, and I gave you those reasons. Again, that um, uh, it's a myth if they tell you 33 degrees has just too many side effects, you know. Uh, again, it's a myth. Uh, tell them to look at those studies or, or point out those studies in a very kind way. And again, I, I caution using 36 uh, degrees or 37 degrees because these patients may. Now, they, your institution may be great, but they may be more prone to fever. And um, But check your institution. Maybe, maybe your guys are doing a wonderful job at 36 and things are going well, but maybe not. Uh, so that's something you should look into at your own institution. Well, that brings my first podcast to a close. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. 